So I feel like AI uh, that's really done for the masses will never be talked about. It's just going to show through consumer grade experience. And any AI that is doing fifty hundred million dollar deals like Palantir or C three or I mean those, there will be a market for that. But it's not for the mid market. It's not for the horizontal enterprise SaaS. It's really built for a bespoke. Oh, we are way better than McKinsey. Uh, kind of. Got it. Now that's a good perspective. I like that. Uh- Welcome to Inside Scoop with Sean Emery. Every week we are examining something new, bringing you closer to companies, sectors, and themes. This recording should not be construed as a substitute for personalized individual advice from Avery and Company or any guests on the show. This is for educational purposes only and not intended to make an offer or solicitation for any companies or securities mentioned. With that, let's get on with the episode. All right. Hello, everyone. We are here with Diraj Pandey, the founder of Nutanix, now the founder of DevRev, someone that exudes passion for kind of anything he has put his fingers on. Uh, He has rolled his success into philanthropic efforts as well. I will let you talk uh, more about that. Uh, Some great stuff there. But welcome, Diraj, to uh, Inside Scoop. Thank you, Sean. And uh, uh, we're looking forward to the opportunity to talk to your audience as well. Yeah. So our, our goal is to not only get your insights into kind of where technology is going, but also understand how we got here. More importantly, how you got here. I think, uh, again, pattern recognition is a real thing, and it's developed by really understanding the successful paths of those that have come before us, companies that have come before us. So you fit perfectly in that mold. You know, Diraj, let's start with your journey uh, and your early years. I think for us is, is again, who was Diraj as a, when you were born, where were you were born, teenage years, and how you eventually got into things like computer science in Texas and, and some other areas? Yeah. Um, you know, looking back, uh, born in 1975 and the first four years are blurred to me because I used to be in this, um, in the state of India, which, uh, was still sort of a very politically conscious state and, uh, let's say resonating with the rest of the country. And yet it was a landlocked state. So one of the poorer ones to begin with, I mean, um, and we moved to the capital city of that state in 1979. Uh, the silver lining was that there's lots of English schools in that area. And that's one of the I would say vestiges of the British rule that, you know, you got a lot of uh, English schools around that area. So I, my uh, mom decided that we will be in the capital city and uh, my father had a transferring job. So he'd go all around the state, uh, but we'd stay in the capital city. Um, but then I think what happened is this was the, those 10 years when I was going from five years to 15 years, um, that state started to become more and more lawless and became the poorest state of the country and the most lawless state of the country. And um, I think our, our, economic status also deteriorated because my father was a government servant uh, working for the state government and he would get salaries every six months, every nine months because of how corrupt the state was, you know. And uh, and he got a lot of social help uh, from my maternal um, side of the family and also the paternal side of the family. Uh, so I owe a lot to, you know, just social things at large and I want to give back a lot what uh, we've done in the last uh, two decades here. Um, in When I was 17, I ended up uh, at one of these... Uh, Competitive Indian engineering schools. It's called the Indian Institute of Technology, IIT. Um, was one of the top hundred students there, and therefore I was fortunate enough to get computer science. And it was uh, a very competitive major back then. Ninety-three was just the beginning of uh, what was happening in India with software. And uh, in the year ninety-six, uh, after my junior year, I had a fork in the road. I could have ended up at Deloitte in Chicago. I could have uh, ended up at Unilever in Mumbai, or I had a few PhD scholarships, a fellowship from UT Austin, and another one from Urbana-Champaign and USC, and Columbia and places like that. Um, and I decided to take the uh, UT Austin offer because it was a fellowship, you know. And, and uh, at the same time, uh, while the university took care of my education here, we didn't have enough money to buy a uh, flight ticket from Delhi to Austin. 
And uh, that's when a couple of the conglomerates in India, they helped me get $3,000 and I bought a ticket for a thousand bucks and I left a thousand bucks with my parents for their expenses. And I had $900 and two suitcases and I took a couple of hops and that was the first time I ever flew in life. I never had been at 35,000 feet in a seat. Uh, so there's a lot of coaching that people gave me like, this is how you, you know, use a seat belt and stuff like that. And I was almost <laughs> 22. This is uh, 97. I was almost 22. But I came here to Austin and, uh, uh, you know, I was a PhD student in computer science. And, uh, and in 98, I came to Redwood Shores and interned at Oracle and realized how big this bubble was. I'm like, wow, this is the time to be in the industry, not in academia. So I took a leave, leave of absence from UT and they were very gracious to give me a couple of years of leave. Eventually they said, look, we just can't keep going on forever. I ended up working for Trilogy Software in Austin, Texas for a year and a half and really saw the excesses of the bubble, right, the internet bubble. And then uh, at that time when I decided to move to California and just literally drove, I had an option to turn right and go to Seattle and, or turn left and come to California. And I chose the smaller company option. Um, again, uh, when I was joining Trilogy, I had not offered to come to Oracle. I took the smaller company. And again, when I was joining this startup, Zambiel, I again declined a big company, Microsoft offer, and instead came to a smaller company, hmm. a really small company. So I've always had this thing for doing small things and seeing if I could get more autonomy and a better purpose and, and mastery and all that. So um, I ended up in the startup. Uh, saw the, you know, the best and the worst of the bubble, uh, both in the boom and the bust. Learned what not to do when you start a company or you run, uh, you know, create a company for the first time. I think we had some really good engineers in that company, and collectively we've gone on to do like twenty twenty five billion dollars worth of, uh, you know, value creation in the enterprise. Uh, just five six of us, you know. Not bad, uh, not bad. <laughs> not bad. I think just happened to be one of those places which attracted good engineers, but uh, we had relatively poor management structure there, you know, or even product management, I would say. But learned a lot in those three years. You know, I'd gotten married in the year 2000, so we had to hunker down after the bubble burst. And, you know, we sort of, uh, I would say, endured in that same startup for three years. Uh, but then in 2003, I was like, you know what? It's probably some time to get back to a big company, learn some software development in a larger company for building for the enterprise. So I joined Oracle Database uh, for four, four and a half years, learned a lot. But then, um, you know, in 2006, I was itching to, again, go back to something small. And I figured maybe I'll apply to some business schools. And I said, I'm going to apply to only three B schools. And... And if I get to do full-time, I'll do full-time, but not really an exec program or anything, you know. Um, and I was 31 at this time. I figured I'll only take a chance on three of the top three business schools, you know. So Wharton, uh, Stanford, and Harvard. And by 2007, I was shocked from my life. And I'd gotten rejected from all three schools because, you know, I had followed a certain stereotype of an Indian engineer and software. And there's only so many they can actually take it. Plus, I was also older for the time. You know, 31 was not a young age for Stanford or Harvard for MBAs. Um, and I'm like, I still have to figure out something for myself, which is when, you know, a recruiter called in 2007 and she was basically recruiting for this data warehouse company, Astrodata, uh, which was really a snowflake of its time back in the day when there was no cloud. Uh, people were still trying to use commodity hardware and, you know, distributed database, uh, data warehouses. So I joined that company, learned a lot uh, over those two years, but in 07 and 09, uh, we were going through another global financial crisis. Uh, so every time I joined a startup, there was some crisis to the other. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think great lessons. Uh, Three of us, we knew each other for a while. Uh, one of the co-founders of uh, the company Nutanix, uh, we had worked in my startup uh, in the year 2000, 2003, uh, before I had uh, joined Oracle. And um, and then the other founder was also one of my best friends from my undergrad. So the three of us were there together, coincidentally, at the startup Astrodata. And in 09, while the financial crisis was still in its early days, we were just itching to go do something of our own. That's when Nutanix happened. And this was September of 09. Um, so, uh, you know, the VC purse strings was still sort of you know, tight. 
but we figured you know this was the time to do it this is the time to do it and uh, we had a semblance of an idea it wasn't really crisp but we just knew that we had to be doing things autonomously and and uh, with a purpose that was ours so that's what we ended up doing and the the story finessed in a matter of you know 12 18 months and yeah, I did it for 11 and a half years and figured, you know, I want to do a service company uh, because Nutanix was still shipping software to uh, on-site sort of on-premise uh, computing world. And so in 2020, when COVID happened, I'm like, you know what, it's time to actually be an investor and really operate something that I could think for the next 15 years because I had another 15 years to give to at least this industry, if not more. I turned 45 in 2020 and I figured uh, building a SaaS company would uh, really bring me closer to the customers because this is the thing that, you know, what SaaS or cloud does is it really reduces complexity. You know, we had like 20, 30,000 sites where our software used to run and there were great lessons about customer support uh, that I wanted to really um, make into a software and that's how it ever happened. So that was my 45, 46 years of history in like five, seven minutes. Yeah, no, it's cool. Um, not quite enough for a book, but pretty close. So the next 15 years may uh, get there now. So let's, let's go back a little bit. So you're, so, so, one thing that I, I think a lot of people recognize now is, is there's a lot of founders, a lot of executives from India. What do you think, uh, you know, makes it such a special culture? What, what's about the culture that you think uh, is distilled or embedded in the country and, and the individuals that come from there that uh, have and allowed such successful entrepreneurial slash executives? So, if, I mean, again, I wouldn't want to pontificate, but, uh, pontificate, but uh, I feel if I were to take a step back, it's mm, emphasis on STEM. Uh, yeah. class upbringing, um, English, you know, just there's a ton of uh, good English in India uh, and just everything is taught in English. So that melds you well with the rest of the West. And sure. uh, I think middle class, when I say that, I mean, there is some uh, natural sort of empath that uh, middle class has actually produced, you know, like there's, there's a certain automatic behavior around, I would say, subservience and, you know, towards customers and thinking about everybody, the customer and so mm -hmm. on. And uh, a certain sense of vulnerability and humility that comes from that. Look, uh, I got so much help from my family around me and uh, we used to struggle so much and we had nothing. So let's see what it means to really be vulnerable and a little bit humble. You know? Yeah. And then, and then continuing going backwards, I guess, what, what, um, so you had a lot of lessons and a lot of journeys along the way. You know, one, one thing I, I picked up and I've heard your stories uh, over the years for sure. And, you know, one thing I, I, picked up is really around, you know, going from, you had all these forks in the road and it, it seems like every single time you almost hit the hardest road. Um, and when I say hardest, I mean, uh, the, the, the road that wasn't as obvious, um, going to the smaller startup instead of the big resume builder, uh, per se, you know, what, um, we have a lot of founders that are on here. We have investors that are on here as well. And, you know, just anything you can share around as you reflect backwards of all those little pivots in your, in your journey, um, why potentially, you know, going down the, uh, less obvious path. Uh, was the right move. I don't know if anything, I'm sure you've uh, thought about this stuff over the years. And uh, when you hit 45, you reflected backwards, you're, you're, you're obviously somebody that reflects a lot. So anything you could share? I think it's the quest for autonomy. I mean, this country is sort of built on the tenets of liberty and freedom. And I think small companies just give you more autonomy uh, to do things and you become uh, more of a full stack person. So you get to you know see the breadth of you know, being a generalist, you know, the book, you know, Range actually talks about this in a really good way about how, you know, there's a lot of uh, folks who are generalists who will do well uh, in this era. Um, and uh, I always wanted to get that full stack uh, exposure. You know, what does it mean to think about design and, you know, product management and customers and being close to customers and all that? I think uh, that was the core of most of my decision making 
I always uh, thought that in a startup, I would have more of an influence, you know, so whether it was joining Trilogy versus Oracle or joining this company, Zambil versus Microsoft or uh, coming to Aster or starting Nutanix or now doing DevRev, I think it's about autonomy, you know, and every time I've taken a decision like this, uh, it's been consequential, you know, I mean, <laughs> each of these, uh, when I didn't take the obvious path, uh, I think they've been meaningfully good decisions. And sometimes it also becomes self-fulfilling because you're like, well, I took this riskier path. I have to make it succeed. You know, there's no other way now, you know, because yeah. I'm taking this contrarian view now that, um, you know, you're going against the mob in some sense. Yeah, I think um, your views historically, you know, over the years, listening to you, speaking with uh, parts of your team, you've always had a contrarian mindset going back to for, you know, your journey in general, but going back to the origin of like a Nutanix and being able to create something with that contrarian view. So let's fast forward a little bit to today to, to kind of extract some of your views of the moment we're living in. And I don't mean the macro moment per se, but I mean more technology today. You know, maybe just start at a very high technology macro level where we are from your point of view. Uh, and then maybe I'll just try to plug in some questions along that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, without coming with platitudes, I'm sure everybody knows in your audience what's happening with tech. But I think at a more subtle level, um, consumer grade is going to be everywhere. You know, and that means mobile has to be really well done in B2B. And um, I feel like, uh, you know, now that we've gotten into subscription consumption era with everything SaaS, and um, there's going to be a need to really understand retention and why are we churning customers and how do we improve net dollar based expansion and and also how do you use tech for all things sales and marketing and you know and there was an era for doing like automation of marketing and automation automation of salesforce but i think that was the last two three decades of uh, what i call the physics of these things but now there needs to be chemistry around this you know where you go from basic elements of sales crm in the 90s and marketing crm in the 2000s and support crm in the 2010s to like wow we've created all these silos but nobody understands the end user and like what do they use and why do they use what they use and why are they churning and why do they love us so i feel like uh we need to really get into an integration mode and this this kind of happened in the 90s too people start talking about integration in a big way but it was more generic bottoms up integration i feel like uh the way to integrate companies and their software and whatever SaaS they're doing is to really have them pivot on the product and end user you know if everything can be around the product and the end user then it helps make go-to-markets more efficient. It improves net dollar-based expansion of subscription and all these things rather than throwing a ton of people. I mean, even at Nutanix, I mean, if you go back to our history last 10 years, uh, we had a relatively legacy go-to-market distribution of, you know, our product was two-tier channel and um, there was a one-to-one SE2 rep ratio and um, we had employees in 60 countries and, and on and on because it was shipping code to people's premises and... Um, and I feel like what SaaS did was was extremely uh, just um, you know formidable and, and uh, you know really well done. The fact that you have a canonical deployment, there's one deployment, you control it, you upgrade it, and uh, you can figure out what new features go to which customers and and so on. You can do tons of experimentation, A/B testing, all that stuff. So the idea of a cloud is a very efficient idea, including for rolling out new products and features and testing things, and also distributing your features. Uh, through one and only one representation of your code, which is the cloud itself, you know. But along the way, I think uh, go-to markets will have to get more efficient, you know. Um, as I was telling you, like we were spending a billion dollars to get to billion six, and I think it was great for its time. But this coming decade will be about product doing more and uh, SE to rep ratios coming down, and uh, you know this idea of PLG, which product-led growth, uh, will actually be done through code, um, just like e-commerce companies did it in the last 25 years, where. There was a ton of efficiency. There was no sales in e-commerce. You know, they they had a product catalog and they do a ton of marketing and a ton of automation and and all that. So many many lessons will need to come from e-commerce 
into B2B. Obviously, yes. there is, uh, I mean, to do all this stuff, you need to really get good at uh, search and machine learning and, uh, you know, mobile apps and things like that. Things that the enterprise B2B market always ignored um, simply because you could throw people at the problem. I think going forward, because of COVID as well, uh, I think remote work, uh, tele-selling, all that stuff, you can do million-dollar deals on a video call, actually. You know? So uh, the world is flatter. Um, you can do 25, 50K deals out of uh, emerging market uh, employees rather than everybody sitting here. So if anything, the front office also gets more dispersed and distributed uh, after COVID. Now that people have tasted success with uh, remote selling and, and, and video calls and all this stuff, to do pretty large deals too. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, yeah, I mean, the consumer side, consumer grade, I, I guess you've always been around simplicity and simplicity, I guess, does two things, right? It opens, it gives the user a really good experience, which is what, at the end of the day, what you're trying to serve for. But at the same time, does, you know, at some point, consumer grade everywhere, right? Uh, in a sense, um, what does churn look like down the road when everything is much more integrated? Uh, again, you even just said it, uh, 20 years ago, people were striving for integration and we're still not fully there at all today. So maybe it's a question that we're, we're talking two decades out from now as opposed to anything in the near future. And it's really around getting people on a single product that then potentially morphs into a pro uh, platform. And that's the ultimate goal or state where you have like the air tables and notions that are trying to go kind of singular and then horizontal and then vertical uh, in all different directions. And code is really flexible in that manner. What, what do you think about that concept where, you know, there's a lot of products that are kind of do everything for everyone. And that ultimately opens the door for, I think, potentially more churn and more kind of experimentation from the consumer standpoint. Uh, everyone gets in that cycle of like, what's my best task manager? <laughs> um, and they're, they're just shuffling through all of them. I know I'm, I'm talking about specifically around project management uh, right now, um, but I think a lot of that as Airtable becomes kind of like an exposed database, but not really, and some other kind of technologies that sit out there in the world. Just in general, what do you think about that concept? Yeah, I mean, uh, for the smaller end of the market, uh, there will be a notion of a super app. You know, and um, the reasons are because, you know, these companies like Zoho and Freshworks and uh, others, actually, even, even Microsoft for its time in the early 90s was all about, we deliver everything to the SMB. And of course, uh, they had a really good API culture. And, you know, back it's, in its time, the, uh, the POM, DCOM, and obviously the internet model that they actually eventually uh, embraced. It was an SMB company, and then they really moved into large enterprise over time. Uh, but I feel like there will be a place for super app for the startups. I think in the mid-market and the larger enterprise, you need to focus on one buyer really well and see if you can do a really good job for that one buyer with multiple products. I mean, I look at Datadog and I'm like, you know what? They've done a really good job of going after the same buyer with five products. Mm -hmm. um, so the go-to-market is more efficient. Others who have tried to go after, even if they are a SaaS company or an API company, if they go after multiple buyers, then they, their go-to-markets actually become less efficient because the leverage is reduced. You know, The trust needs to be rebuilt and so on. So I feel like uh, if you have a single buyer to go after, they'll trust you more if you have more apps for them. Got uh, it. Second app or third app. Um, I think Twilio is suffering a little bit because they went from the developer and doing com communication platform as a service to now going after support and marketing. These are different buyers. So you need different kinds of sellers to really go after them, you know, and the leverage reduces. Um, at the same time, I think what has changed and what will change the enterprise uh, going forward, I feel is, um, you know, this idea that everything needs to go through an SE and a rep to begin with. Uh, we've already seen this in the last 10 years, but I think this decade is the first decade where SaaS will build truly cloud natively, you know, because the last five, seven years, cloud was proven to be a good model. But now this decade, you'll see highly efficient SaaS companies come out because they build everything cloud natively, you know, and that means even the way you program the platform is all happening with Amazon's abstractions or Google's abstractions, as opposed to the SaaS company's uh, closed ecosystem abstractions. I mean, the way ServiceNow was done 20 years ago with Workflow Engine, 
I think it was great for the last 20 years, but the next 20 years, I think developers are looking for, give me my Lambda function, my serverless, my containers and this and that, you know, my Mongo and, and all that stuff. So we'll see a new breed of SaaS companies emerge that have truly built themselves in the cloud native platforms and they look like uh, they are truly integrated with the developer's experience as well. Got it. Well, one other question around tech trends before we get into like DevRev and how you're solving problems there. Um, the AI, you know, there's the buzzwords of AI. I found it pretty interesting, you know, the other day, C3 AI reports and, and uh, you know, they couldn't forecast that some of their deals got delayed and, and so on. And, and a couple other things that have happened over the last several quarters. Where are we in the state of AI? You know, because if the number one AI company is having trouble potentially forecasting quarter to quarter, and I know that's not like the, the whole purpose of AI uh, is to forecast uh, customer bookings and, and trends. Where are we in the state of AI and, and how real are we at like true forecasting capabilities where, you know, we're not just doing the same linear regressions we were doing, you know, over the last several decades? You know, I feel like uh, AI is a means to an end and therefore it cannot be a product. Uh, it's a technology. Um, the best AI companies, they don't even market AI. You know, if anything, Google is not, these days doesn't even want to talk about AI because somehow it reduces the trust people have in Google. Right. Like I mean, Apple does so much of AI with photography, competition photography, but they don't talk about it. They're like, yeah, we just do it. So I feel the best companies that really nail AI, they don't talk about AI. They just talk about experience. And they talk about design and, you know, the, ele the element of surprise and serendipity for the end user, recommendations and things of that nature, as opposed to AI, you know. Um, now, if you look at C3 AI of the world, I feel like it's McKinsey++. So it's extremely uh, bespoke. Everything is bespoke. Because unless you really have uh, a piece of software that, nails at least the transactional side of things. You know, CRM actually nails transactions. ServiceNow nails transactions. Um, all the popular business uh, software companies, they first nail transactions. Then they try to nail engagement, you know, the way Slack does. And finally, you nail intelligence, you know. Hmm. Uh, people still pay for transactions. You're like, hey, day-to-day -day workflows and day-to-day -day approvals and day-to-day -day ticketing and all that stuff is the hardware that everybody is comfortable paying for. Then they, when, they, when you look at the large enterprise, they're like, I don't know if I want to play for, pay for Slack because it's too expensive. I can stay with a more inexpensive bundled teams. So even engagement becomes a big deal to pay for in the larger enterprise, especially the ones that are in those verticals that are growing at 3% like GDP rate of growth or something. And finally, intelligence. But, you know, people are unwilling to pay for intelligence that much. I mean, if it's really McKinsey++, these are really handcrafted deals, you know. So I feel like AI uh, that's really done for the masses will never be talked about. It's just going to show through consumer-grade experience. And any AI that is doing $50, million deals like Palantir or C3 or, I mean, those, there'll be a market for that, but it's not for the mid-market. It's not for the horizontal enterprise SaaS. It's really built for a bespoke, oh, we are way better than McKinsey uh, kind of thing. Got it. No, that's a good perspective. I like that. Um, let's go to DevRev. What problems are you solving? You know, where was the... Uh... I don't want to ask about timing when the idea was formed, but basically in general, like, uh, you know, what problem are you solving? Uh, I watched the product launch, I think on product content and some other things that uh, over the last several weeks and months, where are you in that journey? What's the idea? And yeah, I mean, backwards, what's the idea and where, where are you in that journey? Um, you know, we um, had about 1500 developers at Nutanix and um, they, they all loved talking to customers and customers just appreciated anytime there was an escalation or on-call, you know, the, on the other side of the, uh, Slack channel was a developer and they appreciated how, you know, um, much we respected them if you got a developer or a maker or a product manager in them with a Slack channel. And Slack was just a real-time way to really collaborate outside the premises of uh, our company uh, by bringing these uh, customers into real-time something, you know. Um, and we hadn't done a very good job at the back office of Jira and Atlassian's uh, sort of system record for engineering, software engineering. And everybody just wanted to avoid going to Jira to do anything. I mean, it was really 
a place for records, but not a place for engagement and delight. Um, and also, we had done a really good job of emanating the Salesforce news to everybody. You know, so we had built connectors that would bring a lot of CRM news, uh, you know, in a compliant way, so that you know one couldn't predict a quarter and all that. But you know, every win alert was celebrated by every employee, and that's how we got the customer embedded into the culture of the company, which is why the NPS was so high, because the customer was not like four hops away from the back office or three hops away from the mid office. Um, so this idea that we need to make, you know, the customer and the product, the centerpiece of all execution strategy culture was the piece that was in my head for the longest time. And I think when I figured we'll do a SaaS company, my co-founder who I had known for 30 years, uh, he said, you know, what would it mean to really take this bespoke idea of uh, NPS of 90 and really create software out of it? And how do you do this? Uh, and it's a very nebulous thing to say, hey, let's go make customer-centric companies happen in the world out there. So we, uh, we first thought of a platform, like, okay, this platform needs to not be a departmental level tool. Like, you know, sales CRM was built for Salesforce, Salesforce automation. Back in the time when enterprise reps were still king and $10 million and $5 million were the way you do deals. Um, and uh, then marketing CRM came and it was about campaigns and automating marketing in the 2010s. And then support CRM became a big deal last decade, but they were all departmental tools. And none of them would actually really have a view of what's the product, who uses them, and what's in it for the end user, which is why we started to really create new departments like customer success, which like really infuriates people like Slootman at, at Snowflake. Like, what do you mean there's a department called customer success? Everybody does customer success. But the only way you can do that is if everybody understands customers. So the idea of DevRev was to really look at these sort of the life cycle of a product, the way it's built the way it's operated in a cloud, to the way it's supported uh, with support engineers. And finally, the way you look at growing their business. So there are really four quadrants, the build quadrant of where developers live, the operate quadrant where cloud ops people live, the support quadrant of the top right, which is where support engineers live. And then finally, the grow quadrant where growth engineers live. You know? And so, okay, so these are the four quadrants. And uh, how do we really have them believe that there's one goal and nothing but one uh, you know, true north? And that was end user and product. So we really took all these CRMs and said, no, these are all done wrong. You know, one of them focuses on the buyer, the other one focuses on, uh, you know, leads, the other one focuses on, on, on uh, again, buyers and admins, but no one focuses on users in the product. Hmm. So this idea was about a product-centric and user-centric CRM. We call it dev CRM. But then again, a platform, you can't sell a platform. Just like at Nutanix, we had HCI was a platform, but there was a use case for virtual desktops that emerged after Snowden in 2013, where people said, look, Laptops will never leave a building and, you know, you can have remote workforce with uh, a digital windows coming through the cloud. So our killer use case in this platform begins with support. It's like, look, let's go nail support. And only for SaaS companies and tech companies and software companies, because uh, support CRM, the way it's been done, has been done horizontally for all industries. And a support software for a pawn shop is the same as a support software for a tech company. And that makes no sense. Right. So we're here to really nail support software, understand how it needs to be product-centric, give a ton of data to support engineers and product managers and and then connect it back to the back office though where the underbelly of software happens you know because what atlassian does in the back office and what zendesk or some of the other companies do in the front office they're two sides of the same coin so you need to really bring a slack like culture between the back office uh, systems record and the front office system record um, so we really learned a lot from slack and we said we got to really apply it to a bigger structure uh, which is more support oriented and finally you know software engineering oriented so uh, you'll see us come out with uh, support for SaaS as our first product. Eventually, we want to go and replace uh, Atlassian as well, Jira as well, but uh, it's probably hmm. two years now or something. You know. Two years, you're replacing Atlassian. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, that's... I mean uh, obviously, um, no, that's, you know, that's awesome. They're like but... a, I mean, they're like a VMware of, of, of what Nutanix had to face. And 
we need to have some audacious goals out there. And at the same time, there's leverage in the platform. Honestly, we feel like there's so much leverage around the object model and customizability and a workflow engine and, and the UI and everything else uh, for support and build and things like that, that you don't have to think about building a second product. It's really a second app on the same platform. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So, so as right now, so in the journey, uh, in terms of the build of this, I think you just launched what, a beta version or you actually have a general yeah, availability. A couple, of months, uh, a couple of months from a GA, but, uh, you know, we, we put pen and paper in April of last year. Nice. And, uh, it's been 18 months and, uh, about a hundred odd engineers. Uh, we raised about 65 million in the last, uh, it's still a seed round, you know, we, it's an, uh, open convertible note. And, uh, we've just converted that into, um, a token on Ethereum. So now anybody can put $50,000 um, and it's all digitized and we don't have to do any manual paperwork and we keep a copy uh -huh. of it our carta as well. So, you know, we are thinking that one of the other things that PLG companies will need is also continuous funding, you know, where you're building an order book along the way. You don't have to do waterfall, large uh, investment rounds um, once a year, once in two years. Um, so, yeah, I think we've kept this uh, thing going. Um, we did 50 million and then Every month we do a couple of million um, and uh, there's lots of people who just want to put a million, half a million, you know, 250k kind of kind of things. That's interesting. Yeah, we'll talk about that after after this, but uh, that's probably a whole other conversation. But the, um, oh, wow, that's interesting. So so, so you, you plan launch in a couple months in terms of uh, general availability. You have 100 engineers already. You know, you know, what did you learn or maybe have done different at any part in your journey at DevRev that uh, you think it's just going to take DevRev to another place? Because every stepping stone you've done, you've gone from, you know, other companies where you're uh, an employee to building a business that, you know, valued multiple of billions of dollars to now DevRev and hopefully the, you know, the threshold, I think you just laid it out there. You're going to be going after the Atlassians of the world, which um, I believe is like a 60, 70 billion dollar business overall. Um, so what uh, lessons can uh, people take? It's kind of going back to the origin of this conversation uh, mm -hmm. and then now to the future of yourself. Well, on the good side, just the fact that, uh, you can really be customer centric uh, and be subservient to customers and, you know, have them continue to love you. I think that piece is something that I picked from Nutanix and will continue to keep going at this company as well. Um, of course, in a more automated way, more efficient way, because as I said, with a cloud and canonical deployment, a singular deployment, you can do a lot of things way more efficiently. You can upgrade code five times a day and keep it up and running all the time. I think cloud has immense economies of scale compared to 30,000 sites in some sense, you know. Um, I think on the go-to-market side, I think there's a ton of lessons learned at Nutanix. I mean, um, we copy-pasted uh, the NetApp VMware EMC model from the 90s, the Cisco's model from the 90s. And uh, in the world of cloud, when you're digitally delivering stuff, uh, when you know that onboarding a free customer can be done with no people involved, I think you push more to the product, you push more to design, you push more to zero touch and low touch. You really have to design uh, assuming there's nobody in the room when, the, um, when a potential free customer or user is actually coming to try out your product. So I think those are things which I was trying to do in the last couple of years at Nutanix. But, you know, anytime you have to ship code, you need people to do anything, you know, rack, stack, mount, all sorts of things, you know. So I think it frees up my hand now because we're doing a cloud service. We can really be more opinionated about onboarding and uh, in-app learning and in-app nudges and all sorts of things that were actually a lot more expensive. You know, even like marketing was way more expensive in a, in a B2B company of the year rather than the, the next generation B2B company, you know. Um, SC to rep ratio, if the product does more, you don't need so many people to demo the product and to show you a deck of slides. The, the whole era of showing a deck of slides to start a customer meeting is preposterous now. Yeah. Yeah. The user already knows you. By the time you go out there, you're, you know, you already have a $10,000 spend with a couple of departments or teams or something like that. So that's what we need to go nail. Where now when you have a rep going in there, um, they might not need an SE. They'll not need an SE. You know, SE to rep ratios will look five to one or 10 to one or something, you know. Um, and um, 
you can so really the idea of plg is not going to be one or the other hey everything becomes like e-commerce and there's no need for sales reps but i think you'll do it a lot more efficiently you need to go from freemium to credit cards using a ton of automation a ton of analytics a ton of data going from credit cards five thousand dollars spent to a 25k inside sales i think you'll need a ton of data to know which ones to call going from 25k to 250k uh, you know, field rep doing so. There's a lot of baton passing that will happen along the way, and that's how you make for a more efficient go-to-market. You know, so that's the thing that uh, I feel you can do a lot more through data warehousing. Every click being, uh, you know, captured and analyzed. Every customer being captured and analyzed. You know, tons of. I mean, think about B2B companies of the past. The support contact database and the marketing contact database. They don't talk to each other. So most marketers uh, of the erstwhile enterprise company, they, they only market to leads as opposed to let's go upsell to the existing users because they already trust you and love you and so on. You know? So these are all the lessons that I learned you know, in those 11 and a half years that I feel like there's an opportunity to engineer some of this stuff through automation and, and cloud and so on. Interesting. Cool. Let's skip a uh, last little segment here. Uh, we talked about it at the beginning, which is uh, Texas and your philanthropic work. Obviously, I'm, I'm only calling out one. You, you made a large donation to, I believe, Cancer Foundation for AI. Uh, I think that's why I was bringing it up before. But in general, just talk about the work you're doing there. You've, you've had a very successful career life, uh, and you're, you're now flipping that on the other side where you're, not, you're building again, but you're also um, you know, you're giving uh, at the same time, which is uh, pretty awesome. Uh, just talk about the work you, your family, your wife, uh, and your organization uh, are doing there. Yeah, thank you for reminding me about that. Uh, you know, the idea there is to, you know, just age gracefully and learn along the way. I mean, I couldn't do a company in computational oncology, but I could definitely fund something and be a fly on the wall with some of these researchers and uh, also use that to invest in companies. So we've invested in some life sciences, biotech companies as part of our family office. Um, but biology and computing, the lines will blur. Um, I probably wouldn't have been able to summon courage to start a company in that space because, you know, I probably don't know enough. But I figured, you know, if you could just go sit with these researchers and, you know, professors and still bring, you know, the idea is to converge departments like at UT, there's a machine learning lab, they're oncologists, they're physicians, they're the Dell Medical School, but they all have different specialization. And I think the goal was if you could really use this to converge multiple departments where they can all sit together. And sometimes it's not all about AI, sometimes it's just about statistics, you know, it's just mathematical models, but you need to put some of these things in the cloud. So at one of these uh, efforts there at UT, they're great at what they do with mathematical models, but they just don't know how to put this in the cloud so that it increases collaboration um, across different uh, providers and hospitals and scientists. So we're doing some of those things that this comes naturally to software people like us, but doesn't come so for, for them either. So it's not just about money, which we have, uh, you know, done about $10 million to UT Austin, but between Dell Medical School and, and uh, the machine learning lab, but it's also time, you know, things that hmm. appear obvious to us, you know, uh, but it could be great help for some of those scientists out there, you know. And again, the goal is to, I mean, we, we've gone through COVID in the last couple of years. We know that, you know, uh, 3D printing and computer science and biology will blur, and, you know, the lines will blur. And uh, what better than just bring at least one facet of this, which is computer science to, to the table. And again, not everything is AI. Uh, there's a lot of things that are way simpler than AI, even machine learning, actually. You know, there's, there's mathematical models that are good enough for most of these things, you know, and yet to be able to do this repeatedly and collect data and engineer a lot of these solutions in the cloud and all that stuff is just hard problems to solve. You know? Yeah, no, that's great. Um, cool. I think, look, we'll end there. You know, we're rolling up on the hour. I wanted to thank you, number one, for coming on, uh, taking some time out. Your journey has been uh, uh, exciting to watch from the, from the sidelines in some ways. And then also 
you know, I've, we have always been big advocates of yourself in terms of uh, who you are or exude as a person from the outside uh, looking in. So you see that, I think, in the journey that you've lived from kind of early beginnings with $900 to now uh, providing uh, your hard-earned capital to foundations uh, such as Texas, but at the same time, showing your entrepreneurial spirit here uh, with DevRev that it, it just doesn't leave, you know? Um, so that's super uh, exciting to watch. We'll, we'll be watching DevRev. Hopefully, uh, we'll be tweeting about it or something like that when you, when you are launching. We saw it on Product Hunt, so I, I believe you'll be successful in that as well. But again, I wanted to appreciate or, or let you know that we appreciate you coming on and spending some time with us and, and sharing your insights.